chapter 7, continuing our way uh, through the book of Amos. Uh, it would probably, probably wouldn't come too naturally to people to assume that uh, one would see a lot of mercy uh, in the book of Amos. Uh, it is filled and almost feels repetitive of God's uh, just condemnation of Israel, his people, uh, in their disobedience and in their moving away from God. Uh, but chapter 7, I mentioned in chapter 5, uh, we had sort of this flash of light, this flash of hope. Uh, chapter 7, uh, that's what stood out to me here was the mercy of God. Even though the judgment is harsh, uh, it seems clear uh, by prophet Amos that that judgment is coming uh, upon God's nation Israel, God's people in Israel. But even in that, uh, it seems as though Amos is making the case uh, in chapter 7 uh, of the mercy of God. And in fact, the message title kind of comes from that, uh, mercy uh, recognized or uh, withdrawn. And that seems to be the place that Israel found themselves in. And over and over, uh, uh, Amos, from the beginning of his book, has told us in regards to God's judgment was coming, told them that God's judgment was coming. Uh, he spent some time explaining why that judgment was coming and, and the descriptions of what that judgment would be like. And uh, chapter 7 through 9, there are, uh, I think, uh, five visions now that he speaks of or that are symbolic of that judgment or some characteristic or quality uh, of that judgment. We have in this chapter three of those, uh, which are swarms of locusts, uh, fire or consuming fire and the plumb line. In chapter 8, we have the basket of summer fruit. And then in chapter 9, we have the image of the Lord standing by the altar. So it seems as though Amos is concluding his, his prophecy, uh, giving us symbols or, 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 or analogies in regards to the judgment of God or what's involved in God's judgment upon the people. Uh, they did not clearly recognize the mercy of God, and that had left them in a place to receive only the judgment of God. Uh, there is a point, by the way, where mercy rejected uh, becomes mercy withheld. Uh, I was listening this morning on the way to church, a preacher on the radio, and he was uh, reminding me again of uh, God judges sin in one of two places, for the believer in Christ or apart from Christ, the believer receives the judgment of God upon himself for all of eternity. Uh, he may begin to experience some of that in this life, but certainly the fullness of it throughout eternity. And so that's what uh, I hear Amos saying in chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, which is what we'll look at this morning. And then maybe pick up next Sunday or Wednesday night, uh, verses 10 through 17. So let's read together. It begins here, thus the Lord God showed me and behold, he was forming a locust swarm with the spring crop began, when the spring crop began to sprout and behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. And it came about when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land that I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand for he is small? And the Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, the Lord God was calling to contend with them by fire, and it consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland. 
And then I said, Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob stand for he is small? And the Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Father, thank you for your word. Help us today to see clearly. Father, I pray that the darkness and the blindness of of sin would be removed this morning, that the light of truth and the light of your glory might shine through. Lord, I am particularly touched this morning and blessed by the idea and the understanding of your mercy. And Lord, I pray that that's what stands clear here. And Lord, I pray is equally that it will come to rest upon our, on our hearts this morning what is left to us apart from that mercy. There is only judgment, and that the most devastating kind. So, Father, I don't know every heart and soul in this room this morning. I know many by name and know many very well, but, Father, you know the hearts. You know those who may be sitting here this morning who themselves has been, have been beneficiaries of your long-suffering and mercy for many years, perhaps. And Father, I pray that upon that heart you would bring to bear this morning the reality of the judgment pending them were they not to yield and to respond to that mercy in repentance. And Father, for the believer, I pray that it might be magnified this morning the weight and the glory of the mercy that they have received, the new life that they have and the assurance that this destruction will pass over them. This death will not come for them for they have already died once in Christ and are alive in Christ and forever secure from this ultimate condemnation. But, Father, help us to be mindful as well that you are also not a God to be trifled with. Again, as I've said so many times, that you are a righteous God. So help us this morning for your name's sake and for your glory and for our good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've already mentioned, there were five visions here. We'll just look at three of those this morning. Uh, as I've also mentioned in chapter 1 through 6, Amos went to great length in explaining the judgment of God. I was thinking this week that uh, part of the indictment against Israel is the fact that a prophet from Judah came. Uh, now, doesn't mean God couldn't have raised up a righteous man in Israel and doesn't mean there weren't perhaps people who were being faithful in Israel who were being suppressed. It's almost as if God called Amos from his flocks and from his, uh, from his um, harvesting uh, as, a, as an indicator, as, a, as an implied message that there's not a righteous man in all of Israel. The nation itself was corrupt to its core. Maybe that's the case for calling Amos, but it's clear to me from Amos and from other minor prophets that Israel had gone far away from God. And so Amos gives us these images that the Lord gave him. And he says in verse 1 there, thus the Lord God showed me. So it's clear 
that these were not summations or ideals that originated with Amos. Amos isn't doing like I do so much in our world today that I look at the world and I surmise how this is going to turn out in America. Uh, I'm doing that by my experience and by the truth I know and, and bringing to bear what I believe will be the outcome of the current ideologies and, and trajectories of our nation. Those are maybe even partially educated guesses, but they are not this. This is prophecy. This is Amos one who was not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, moved and stirred by God to travel from southern uh, Israel, Judea, into the northern kingdom where he would probably not have been welcome and say to them, thus the Lord showed me. This is God revealing to Amos what he's about to share with the Israelites and, for, and us through the word. And that's important. And this is what the Lord revealed to him. Behold, I had this vision as it were, and, and the, Lord, uh, the Lord God was showing me that he, was, he, the Lord God, was forming a locust swarm. So here it is, uh, the sovereign God acting uh, to bring the instruments of locust, in this case, against his people. Uh, I don't want you to overlook the fact that he was forming a swarm of locusts. The locusts, by the way, have, their, uh, have the origin of their existence owed to God himself. God brings the locust into being as locust. And not only is God master of the locust, but in this imagery, God is shaping or forming the swarm. Forming. Uh, it's interesting to me, I, I thought we had termites at the house one time and I noticed out in the front porch there was a swarm of, of winged animals, uh, insects flying around and I raised up this uh, tarp that uh, we had the pine needles on and it was just swarming all into there and I thought sure my house is completely going to be consumed by termites and called someone to come and look and they said, take heart brother, <laughs> they're not termites, they're ants. And I didn't know ants swarmed and moved their colonies, but that's the way they spread their colonies. And I thought about that swarm that I was witnessing there and bees as well, honeybees. But here Amos is saying that God is in back of forming the swarm. The locusts owe their being to the God and the swarming of the locust owes its being with God and God is doing it in this case for a certain purpose. This is what the vision of Amos. So God was forming a locust swarm. Notice as well that it's in the most inopportune time for the common people. He says here that he was forming this swarm when the spring crop began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop that he's speaking of was after the king's mowing. If you read any about the agriculture and the tribute paid to the king, the, the first harvest, uh, in this case it may have been hay or something, but the first harvest was given to the king. And then you got the latter rains and they brought about a, a bountiful second harvest and that was what you ate. And so 
If you missed the, if you had a locust swarm at the early harvest before the king's mowing, then the king wouldn't get his share, but you had something to fall back on, a second harvest, and then maybe you could pay the king out of that and still have something to eat. The second harvest was critical to the livelihood of the common people. The king gets his share. So not only is God bringing the locust into being, not only is Amos foreseeing here that God is swarming the locusts, he's bringing them together as a swarm. And by the way, the swarms could be extraordinary. I mean, sweeping wide swaths of land, completely devastating. God is bringing, making up this swarm, and he's going to send it, not at the king's harvest. The king will get his. He's sending it at a time that it'll devastate the second harvest, which was the food of the common people. Israel was going to suffer in this vision. And it's striking to me because it says something about the purposes and the, and the secret counsels of God that in this particular judgment, the king would have his share, but the common people would be deprived of their share if this comes to pass. This is devastating. And it's, and it's doubly devastating when the people in their depravity would have looked to the king and he had all that he needed. And they would realize that the crops that the king is surviving and all of his royal palace and all the elite are surviving on came from our fields. And now they're prospering and we're suffering. God is unjust in this sort of suffering. That would have been the, the response. And so in the secret councils of God, he's bringing this swarm of locusts upon the, upon the fields of the common man, and it is to be the overwhelming majority of the common men of Israel and their families who would suffer under this judgment. Is it any reason here that Amos doesn't cry out, Lord God, please pardon? See, in the vision in verse 2, Amos saw the end of this. The vision wasn't just God forming the locust and God seeing it at an inopportune time. But he says in verse 2, it came about when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land. It ate it all up, devastated it in this vision. And that's what provokes this compassion from Amos, by the way, for Israelites. Oh, God. Please pardon. I read one translation. It said, Sovereign God, please pardon. He's recognizing in this vision the sovereign hand of God Almighty under whom all nations have their existence. And it's that God who is master of the universe that he is appealing to. Oh, sovereign God, please pardon. I started entitled the message this morning, Bold and Broken. A, a, a study of a, the spirit of a true prophet. And it's easy to read the book of Amos and hear the fiery prophecies of God and, and embrace to ourselves a similar attitude. I've said this before. I've met a lot of folks who have, an, I call it an Elijah complex. They want to call down fire from heaven, but there's no brokenness in them. Amos seems to be fire, firing boldly the prophecies of God Almighty. He is bound by his calling to be truthful about the judgment coming upon the people. But at the same time, it's his people. These are Israelites. 
These are people whom God had called out of Ur of the Chaldees and made covenants with them. These are the people of God and his heart seems to be broken here. But notice what he doesn't cry out for here in this first vision. He doesn't say, God, overlook their rebellion. He doesn't say, God, justify them. He says, God, pardon. It's an acknowledgement of the sin of his people. In fact, I thought about these visions. These are not, maybe not so much visions of things that were coming that God turned away from at the intercession of Amos. They may, in fact, be God's revelation to Amos of what ought to have come upon Israel. And then he used the instrument of Amos' own prayer to relent from bringing that upon Israel. But Amos is not trying to justify Israel. No more than I would try to justify America today and God's pending judgment upon our nation and our growing deterioration culturally and environmentally and spiritually in every other way. I would dare not plead to God that He might somehow justify the, the wickedness of a nation. We are guilty just as Israel was guilty. And Amos cries out in, a, in his compassion, not for justification for Israel, but for pardon. That's forgiveness. Now that involves justification, not theirs, not a justification of their activities, but a justification ultimately rooted in Christ, whereby mercy might flow to them for God to relent here. But they, this is a vision of what ought to have been rightly so in the life of Israel, and Amos knows it. And he says, God, forgive. Notice he says as well of Israel here, how can Jacob stand for he is small? I think he means by that his weakness, not so much his smallness in number, but in comparison to the mighty God who brings the locusts into existence, calls them to swarm, sends them at the opportune time and, and de de devastates the vegetation of the fields. Compared to that God, how can Jacob stand? How can Jacob stand at all? He is weak. He is small. He is insignificant in light of what ought to be come upon him in the, in the protecting, as it were, or the preservation or the acknowledgement of the righteous glory of God Almighty. When we pray for our nation, we ought to be praying that God forgive because we are a nation deep in sin. I'm not interested and I have no biblical warrant whatsoever for God to justify the nation apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There is, let me say this with all my heart, there is no redeeming quality in sinful man or in the governments of central man, sin, sinful man. There is no redeemable quality in them whereby God should be constrained to exercise mercy. And I'm never going to be praying along those lines. I pray for mercy for our nation and for every nation. But I pray for a mercy that flows from the sacrificial death of Christ and the precious blood of Christ. And that is the only mercy alone which will be extended upon the prayers of God's people and as an, or on the instrumentality of God's people. Verse 3 Tells us the conclusion here. The Lord God changed his mind about this. I love the, the affirmative nature of this. It shall not be. 
Just as, just as decisive and powerful as the vision was and, and clearly indicative to Amos of what ought to be for Israel. This is justifiably condemnation for a disobedient and rebellious people. But with just as much sovereignty and certainty, he says, this shall not be. Uh, I was reading... I'll touch on this with the fire as well, but I, I was reading one commentator this week that was talking about this may be the locust and fire may be symbolic for, for, for the frequent invasions from the east. And, and many of which God uh, did not let come to fruition. So, so God may have symbolically been saying in those instances, this shall not be. Whether, that's, whether it's literal or whether it's symbolic of those invasions, it is the authoritative word of God that prevents this from, from happening in this moment. It is because he says so that it shall not be. Just as surely as he says judgment for those in Christ shall not be. Not judgment for sin. So that's his first vision. And as though to, as though to affirm God's Visions here are God's calling and his message to Israel. God appears apparently a second time to Amos through vision. Verse 4, thus the Lord God showed me and behold the Lord God was calling to contend with them. Contend with them by fire. And it consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland. It struck me there this idea of the contention. So notice the severity is picking up as well. The locusts would have been devastating. There wouldn't have been much to eat. Certainly there would have been starvation and famine had that gone through. But in the case of fire, there will be nothing left. It will sweep across the fields with a hot east wind and it will blow the fires through. We saw the devastation in Maui recently. That would be nothing in compared to the to devastation would be caused to all those crops with fire. But what strikes me here is Amos in the vision, he understands that God is in this fire by the instrumentality of this fire contending with Israel. It's a... It's a terrifying thing, thing to think about is to have the sovereign God of the universe who caused locusts into being and to swarm and to, uh, to launch their attack on the field at an opportune moment and the God who caused fire who, by whose principle fire exists altogether for that God to be contending with you. That's a terrifying thought. And let me just say, when you were an enemy of God and you were rebellious and had lost in your darkness, God was contending with you. And even if there was mercy extended to you as it was to Israel, you were no less an enemy of God in that moment. In fact, you, make, you were making yourself double guilty before that God, a double down enemy of God in that you were rejecting the very mercy that he was sending your way. But here he has a vision that God has come now to contend with Israel by fire. And I think when he means the deep here, I don't think he's talking about the oceans on fire. I think he's talking about the depth and the expanse of this fire that God is contending with his people by. I was reading one article that said certain crops, this fire would be so devastating and so hot that it would even burn the roots below the ground and the fire itself would be, it would be utterly devastating not only to the present crop but to any future crop as well. 
And so the intensity of what was due Israel or what Israel ought to have experienced was rising here in these visions. First was locusts, devastating enough, but here is fire, utter de devastation, generational devastation perhaps. It's rising in intensity. And in verse 5, Amos responds similarly, except this time he doesn't say, Lord God, please pardon. Perhaps he's already, he's already interceded for pardon, forgiveness. He knows that forgiveness is key, that it is the root that God somehow must, must pass over and not hold accountable Israel for their sins in order for them to be spared. There must be some, there must be some means by which pardon can come because Israel is certainly undeserving of it and they rightly ought to receive the fullness of the locust swarms and rightly ought they to experience the fullness and devastation of the fire which God, with which God is contending with them. So this time he doesn't say, Lord, please pardon. I was almost moved to tears when I thought about Amos' second phrase here, Lord God, please stop. He knows what this involves. Stop. I mean, that is an utteral cry. That is not an authoritative cry. That is not some prophet standing on a high perch somewhere thinking that he has authority with God to thwart the plans and purposes of God, commanding that God should stop. It is the guttural cry of a man broken because of the sin of his people and the impact on the nation that is crying out in his urgency and in his brokenness. Oh God, stop. Have you ever felt that way when you look at our nation today? I mean, when I look at our nation this day and I see the corruption I was sharing with the kids this morning uh, where in Ephesians where he says the walk as imitators of God and later on he says put away these things from yourself, filthiness. And I was sharing with the kids how they're growing up in a generation that is saturated with filthiness on every turn and it is a, only the grace of God that they can survive without being stained by the filth themselves. Everywhere you look, it is filthiness altogether and you are enraged like Amos and you want to cry from the mountaintop the warnings of God Almighty but at the same time doesn't it break your heart because you anticipate the devastation coming to this nation and it makes you want to cry like this oh God stop oh God stop I've seen it in individual lives of those who have rebellion against God and I told a story recently about someone I knew that had been resisting and rushing away from God and, and doing everything opposite of what God had called. And there was a severe accident and I got a call and was to go down to Baptist Hospital and I drove all the way down expecting to see someone in intensive care and perhaps torn all to pieces. They had rolled their car multiple times at 70 miles per hour. And I got down there and was delayed in the waiting room. And finally, I thought, well, I will never go back anyway. But I found out their family was back. And I thought, well, surely they wouldn't have their family in the trauma room. What's going on here? And finally, they get a call and they say, the pastor can come back. So I'm holding my breath because I don't know what I'm about to witness. And I opened the door and walked in. And the, the young lady was laying there and not a scratch or bruise on her at all. Nothing. Nothing. 
70 miles per hour, multiple rollovers and nothing. And she began to describe to me how as the vehicle was rolling, she was conscious and aware of all that was going on. And somehow or another, the, the contents of her purse were falling out and leaking out. And when she landed upside down, what was wrapped around her turn signal was a cross that was dangling in front of her eyes that her mother had given her, but she refused to wear and stuck it in her purse. And I, I said to her with all of my heart, please listen. Listen, God speaks in ways like that. He is sovereign over the brakes of your car. He is sovereign over the car who stopped in front of you on the interstate. He is sovereign over you rolling over and of every molecule in that vehicle moving into its position as you roll. He is sovereign that because you, you are proof that He is sovereign because you are lying in intensive care or in a hospital room without a scratch on you after such an event. That's what Amos' heart must have been for his people Israel. Over and over and over again, God had shown mercy and restraint towards Israel. And Amos knows that Israel is deserving of everything that God has forecasted to come upon them, even more so. He knows it with all of his heart. And all he can cry for is, is pardon, forgiveness for their sins because that's the only escape. And for God to please, please, he says, stop. Please stop. I wonder sometimes if true revival in America, if God hasn't placed that in the realm of the church being able to pray that way again. In our generation, and I've heard church folks talk like this, it seems they seem more like Jonas. They seem more content that God would wipe out all the wicked people in America and leave them some pristine monastery that they could all gather in someday. Where is the brokenheartedness of the church when it looks at the devastation ahead? If you think that your children being Christians are going to be spared somehow from national suffering because of the sins of a nation while we remain quiet in the church, I think you're deceiving yourselves. And at minimum, we better be preparing our children to live in, a, in, a, in the suffering, amidst the suffering. And at maximum, we ought to equip them to go out and be Amos's in this world and proclaim the coming judgment of God Almighty unless there is a turning away from that sin. So thus he showed me here, verse 6, he says the same. Verse 5, he says the same of Jacob. He cannot stand, he is small. In verse 6, we see again the mercy of God. And the Lord changed his mind about this. Notice here he adds the word to. Neither shall this happen. So Amos, I'm showing you two visions. They're devastating. And Amos feels the weightier. I, I have no, no idea that Amos missed the, the weightiness of this and the devastation. He felt it. He said, oh God, forgive. Oh God, please stop. And the Lord confirms with just this certainty here, neither shall this happen. This will not happen either. Two visions, neither one going to happen. Both visions ought to be true. Israel is deserving of both and infinitely more than that in their rebellion against a holy God. But neither of these will come to pass. And this is where it's striking because it doesn't seem to me like Israel recognized that. These invasions, if this is symbolic and they were invasions, they may have thought, well, God turned that away because our armies were intimidating to the others. 
God, t- God turned that away because they didn't anticipate the strength they would encounter in Israel. They came over and seen us and they got afraid and realized they couldn't take us, so they withdrew. The imagery here seems to be that whenever they did that, if that was an invasion or even if it was locusts that didn't utterly destroy, whenever, whenever that happened and it was held back, that the Israelites thought that it was some natural thing. We heard about the locusts over there in the east, but they never got to Israel. Never got to Israel. Natural occurrences. Boy, we dodged a bullet that time. And how many times had they had instances like that, that they had disregarded those as the mercy of God restraining judgment? And how often had they perverted that and said, our preservation is God's endorsement of Israel? Man, that really weighed heavily on me this week. The fact that you haven't got a cancer diagnosis this week uh, isn't necessarily God's endorsement of your faithful lifestyle. The fact that we haven't been overrun by another nation or nuked in some way is not, a endorse, is not evidence or necessary an evidence of God's endorsement of the righteousness of America. The fact that you didn't have that collision that you almost had is not just a freak of nature and just a matter of timing. And it is also not God's endorsement of your righteousness. All those times in our individual lives and in the lives of nations and in the lives of those around the world, all of those times this sovereign God is in charge. And oftentimes His restraining of those things is dismissed by those who are sinners and who are deserving of that and more is dismissed as natural occurrence. And worse, as God's endorsement, then my lifestyle is fine. And that's exactly where Israel was. And Amos has come to tell them that all those times that mercy, even these visions are of, are of portended or pending disaster and the Lord relented. You have not been overrun by locust or fire because the Lord relented in that, just as He did in Nineveh. That's the only reason, not because of your righteousness. And so there is mercy, and mercy was not recognized by them. They, they, they squandered it, or they exploited it, and even used it to verify or to solidify their own feelings of self-righteousness or acceptance with God, and oh, how unacceptable before God they were. And so is the sinner who would disregard the mercies of God in their lives every single day, the mercy of another breath. Because all these judgments and more are due the sinner apart from Christ. And how often do we exploit that mercy? In verse 7, I think this third vision that he shares here is to indicate that there is a moment. There is a moment where the rejection of these mercies and the ends of these mercies will come. Thus he showed me, and this is the third vision, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Amos? And I said, I see a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. Dreadful words, I will spare them no longer. Interesting here as well is when he did the swarm and then the fire, he didn't give the vision and say to Amos, what do you see, Amos? 
And Amos would have said, I see a swarm. He's telling us that, but he doesn't, God doesn't question Amos on what you see. It's clear what you see, Amos. Devastation. But in this time, he shows him something that draws the attention, as it were. I, well, I see this image, but it doesn't seem the same as the other two. Well, it's not the same. The other two were visions or images of the manifold mercies of God. Twice in those visions, restraining the wrath and judgment of God Almighty justly due upon a people. This is a very different vision. And God, I think, questions Amos to draw his attention because here is the point for Israel. He showed me and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall. Uh, notice there that the wall has already been constructed. It's built. He's not using the plumb line to build the wall. He's already built the wall. The plumb line is to examine the wall for its uprightness, its verticalness, true vertical. I've used a plumb bob many times in my, in my work, and it's made to do two of, or one of three things. It is made to, to, to measure or to gauge uprightness, something's true vertical nature, it's made, it's used to transfer a mark from above down below, vertically true, and it's made to transfer a mark below, vertically true, to somewhere above. And I thought all three of these might apply here. This is, not only is there a wall there, but God is standing beside the vertical wall. He is in the, in the vicinity of the wall. He is a witness to the wall. And make it even more frightening, this God, who apparently by this implication built the wall, now is standing with a plumb line, going to evaluate the wall's vertical trueness. Is it as I built it? And when God builds the wall, He laid the foundation, He lays the block, He builds the wall up in that way. That's exactly what He had done in the life of Israel. In fact, some commentators believe Israel in this case is the wall. And they draw that because later on He says, I'm dropping my plumb bob down in the midst of my people Israel. They are the wall that I built. I called out, I gave them a foundation, I built upon it, I gave them the law of God and the Word of God that might keep them upright and in righteousness. And I'll, now I'm coming, all these all these mercies delayed here, these mercies and judgments delayed through my mercy are coming to bear. God himself is holding the plumb line and he's measuring Israel. Are they true vertical? Are they truly upright? Amos has already made the case. They are not. They are not. My brother was a brick mason. In this case, it would be a stone mason, but a brick mason will tell you, if you get your corner off, if you get your corner out of plumb, you might as well tear it down. Because there's no, there's no going off of, of a crooked corner to lay a foundation the way it ought to be laid. My brothers told me many times uh, they'd have a new mason on there and he wasn't paying attention to his corner and it was out of plumb and, and he would go over to it and he'd set his level on it and it was so far out. And my brother said he'd just take his leg and kick the whole corner over. And that new brick mason would be enraged. What are you doing? And my brother would tell him, you can't straighten a crooked corner. If the corners are not straight, the walls in the center are not going to be straight because you have nowhere to pull your line to lay your block by. And that's the imagery happening here. But it is God himself who has come to drop the, the plumb line. And man, my heart shudders to think that if he dropped the plumb line on this nation, 
given its Judeo-Christian foundations, a nation that once prided itself on being a Christian nation. If God appeared in America today to stand by this wall we call America and pull out his plumb bob, as it were, or his plumb line and drop it down from heaven above to see how upright this nation is, we would be as much deserving of God's wrath and judgment as Israel was. And that's the imagery here. Swarms, God relents, mercy. Fire, God relents, mercy. But mercy runs out at some point. And then God comes to drop the plumb line and to measure the the true uprightness of a nation and of a people. And he's going to find Israel woefully lacking. And they will go into judgment. Here's what he says. I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. Then he says, I will spare them no longer. The implication there, explicit, is that it is not implication, it's explicit. It is that he had been sparing them. And that's what the first two visions were indicating. I have spared you over and over and over again. I've been sparing you. For his own purposes and according to his own covenant all the way back to Abraham. He's going to keep for himself a people and he would do that even in the destruction of Israel. He's going to honor his own covenant because it is made upon his own authority and upon himself. And so so he's going to do that. But he is about to spare them no longer. Their mercy has come to an end for the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. I will spare them no longer. Notice here in the last part of verse, in verse 9. Uh, where he directs this judgment. Uh, it's interesting because it is in the religious realm and in the governmental realm. As he says in them, as a part of his not sparing them anymore, the high places of Isaac will be desolated, desolated and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. The religion of Israel was to be its interaction with its God. He gave them the law. They were to relate to him along the basis of the law. And, and it was to be the central, central point of the life of Israel. And all government was to flow out of that, out of that realm, of that right relating to their God. And he says, I'm, I'm taking down your religion because you have perverted it. You have exploited it. They've been, they've been turned it into prostitution and, and all sorts of idolatry in the temple, devastating and defiling and blasphemous things they had done in regards to their religion, perverted the religion of Israel. So God's lack of mercy here, his withdrawing of mercy, brings him into direct conflict with the religion of Israel. And I think as a consequence of that, he speaks here directly to the government of Israel. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam, the second in this case. But Jeroboam was essentially the headstone of the government. He was the figurehead and the actual head of the government of Israel. So I'm coming against the religious establishment in Israel because it is a mockery and blasphemous and I will utterly destroy it. And then I'm coming to the governmental structure of Israel as well. I'm doing away with that as well because they are as corrupt politically and practically as they are spiritually. That's what I said. That's why it made me think, no wonder God called a prophet from Judah because apparently it seems as though there wasn't a godly man in all of Israel. The whole nation itself had become corrupt, it seems. 
And when mercy runs out, God comes against it and destroys, utterly destroys its religious practice and all of its dependence upon its false religions. And it goes to the very heart of their government, which is where they thought the seat of power and authority that was protecting them from the nations is. He's taking it down. Now, do you think if God was able to do that then, that God is not able to set up kings and bring down kings in our own day? There's not a nation on earth with a military powerful enough to thwart the hand of God once he has purposed to bring a nation's leader and leadership down. None. And the only thing to be appealed for and to cried for here is the mercy of God. And I'm afraid sometimes I'm not a necessarily a pessimist when it comes to mankind, I am. But when it comes to God, I'm an optimist. He, will all, he can always accomplish the in, um, impossible and unthinkable. And he may indeed bring revival but not until we recognize how often we have thwarted and disregarded and made mockery of the very mercies of God Almighty. And until we fall upon our knees as a nation and as a people and repent and turn away from that, acknowledge our hardness of heart and the darkness in which we've learned to live in so many ways and which, as Lot said, vex their righteous soul by living in them. And when we turn in that place, Perhaps we will understand and perhaps God will grant the mercies demonstrated in verse in chapter 7, those first two uh, visions of Amos. Stand with me this morning. Father, thank you again for your word. Lord, I thank you for the warning of history. We know that Israel eventually did fall in 586 B.C., they were overrun and carried away. And as we'll learn in the next message in Amos, that Jeroboam himself would die in a foreign land. He would die as an exile. Your word is true. And Father, it is no less true when spoken in terms of this present world. There are many things to unfold in the fulfillment of prophecy as we understand it in the scriptures. But Father, we know whatever our eschatological view may be, we know that in the end, the great and awesome and terrible and merciful God will reign. So Father, we thank you this morning, we who are believers for the treasure of Christ and the cross, the mercy flowing to us there to bring about the new birth that removes us from this judgment and Father, we with broken heart cry out for our nation as well and for those who are apart from Christ that you, may, that you may pardon, that you may apply to them the precious blood of Christ, that you may call them from darkness into light. And Lord, we pray for our nation as well, that you might humble our leaders, that they might not think that our arsenals will defend us and protect us, that our superior spies and our greater economic power, Father, we've seen how all of these things can be corrupted and be unreliable completely. And Father, I pray that you would bring a spirit of humility to this nation again that would cause us to understand that we have gone far away from the God uh, whom this people once trusted in. Have your way in these moments of invitation, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.